want to turn back this morning to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9. We are going to continue our study where we left off last week. You remember last week we looked at the time when Jesus fed a multitude with just a few loaves, five loaves and two fishes, and there was plenty left over for the disciples to eat, maybe for a meal the next day as well. Jesus took little, and of it he made much. And we talked about how he is not only able to, but does do that every day in the history of this world. When we consider our weakness, our inability, and what little we bring to the table, we can reflect then on how graciously God uses that little and does so much with it, both in our lives and in uh, those round about us. And if we can't see it in ourselves, we can see how God's taken people who really weren't that much and used them in our lives to a, to a wonderful purpose. Maybe some of you can reflect on that as you think about grandparents or parents. Maybe grandparents who had very little education and very little in the world's eyes who meant the world to you. Why is that? It's because God used them to teach you, to instruct you, to be an example to you. And we can see that also in the history of the church as it's influenced the world. A small group of people, a, a band of people who have believed firmly in Jesus Christ and his word, but haven't really attained very much in the world's eyes. But that, after all, is not what the church is called to do. The church is called to manifest God's power in and through their weakness. And Paul reminds us of that in the Corinthian letter as he says that God hasn't chosen you because you're mighty, because you're powerful, because you're wise, but instead because you're weak and you're insignificant and you're worthy of despite. The world looks down on you. God's chosen you to confound the things that are mighty and the things that are wise. So this ought to give us encouragement. It ought to give us hope. The very next verse, verse 18 of Luke 9, it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what's a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself, or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Father's, and of the holy angels." But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God.
This is a powerful moment of instruction between Jesus and his disciples that's here recorded. And Luke records it in a slightly different way than is recorded by Mark or by Matthew. We have to remember Luke wasn't physically present on this occasion, as he wasn't for most of what we've been reading. There's no doubt that Luke conducted validation of the stories he had been told. He interviewed individuals who were there. He gave a very detailed historian's account of everything that he recorded. And he said he was going to set in order more perfectly the events that transpired in this book, and that he does. It came to pass after this great miracle of the feeding of the thousands, that Jesus was alone praying. They finally got their alone time, their downtime. And what does Jesus do with that rest, that alone time? Well, he spends it praying. That's instructive in itself. Jesus was praying all the time. So when he instructs us and says, pray without ceasing, we can take that seriously. He gave us an example. Every time we find Jesus alone, we find him in prayer. So he was never truly alone. He was speaking to his Father. Jesus was alone praying with his disciples, and he asked them. He took a break from his prayer, and he asked them, saying, Whom do the people say that I am? Who do they say? I am. And the disciples were ready with some answers. They've been talking. They've been listening. People have been talking. Everybody knows that Jesus is miraculous, that Jesus is powerful. Everybody knows that this is a prophet sent from God. So the question is, who is he? And they answering said, John the Baptist. The most ready response of everyone about who is Jesus is, oh, he's John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist, the one who was just beheaded. Jesus is John the Baptist. He's come back from the grave. Different form, same person, same power. No, that's ridiculous. And a lot of people recognize how ridiculous that is. Jesus was around contemporary with John the Baptist. He began to climb of notoriety after John's death. But he was there before John died. So others are smarter than that. Others say, well, you're Elijah. They say you're Elias. After all, John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah. You are Elijah. He came before you. You're Elijah. They thought that because in Old Testament prophecy in the book of Malachi, it said Elijah is going to come. Jesus says in Matthew that Elijah, who was going to come, is John the Baptist. It was figurative of him. They're not clear on that. They say, well, maybe this is Elijah. It's clearly someone miraculous, something amazing. And others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. In Matthew's account, he says maybe Jeremiah or one of the prophets, one of the old prophets. Clearly, this is something we haven't seen in hundreds of years. This is a special occurrence, a special coming. This man, he must be a prophet. All of these explanations are ridiculous. And they show the lack of understanding, the lack of faith, the lack of knowledge of the real power that was before them. You see, it would be a terrible crime to suggest that God is a mere man. And that's what they were doing. It would be one thing if you and you or I were to go and teach or speak or, or do something and people said, Wow, you're amazing. You must be a prophet of God. You must be like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah. We might be honored that they would think that of us. We'd have to correct them. 
But not so with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was greater than John the Baptist. He was greater than Elijah, greater than Jeremiah. Jesus was what? Jesus was God. So Jesus says, who do you say? But whom say ye that I am? In this he's saying clearly, all of those are wrong. What do you think about it? And of course we're all familiar with Peter's response. As Matthew gives it, Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here in Luke's account we read, you are the Christ of God, the anointed of God. Peter answering said, the Christ of God. Matthew gives us the full account. Matthew was present there. One reason for the account given. Perhaps also Luke is not interested in retelling exactly what's been told before. Mark's gospel is already uh, already present. Matthew's is probably already on the scene. Luke's not trying to correct, but he's also not trying to repeat everything. Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to that is, You're blessed, Simon Barjona. You're blessed of God because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. He gives us the source of the knowledge, the source of inspiration. Luke doesn't go into that detail, but one thing Luke does tell us is that Jesus then straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. Interesting command, interesting statement. Jesus is out preaching the gospel. He's sending them to preach the gospel to tell the story of his coming, his person, his work. To say the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the man whom God said he would send is here. Yet Peter says you're the Christ of God and Jesus says don't tell anybody. Why? Verse 22, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Jesus says, I'm here for a purpose, and there's some things that have to happen. Why would he say, don't go around telling people this is the Christ of God? Well, because the works that he did testified who that he was. And it would change the debate dramatically if all of a sudden these disciples were going out saying, we are the servants of the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ of God. No, that wasn't necessary. Why? Because Jesus' teaching showed who he was. He was teaching the word of God, teaching the truth, speaking the word of God. In his day, they saw who he was. And faith ascertained what that meant. Those who heard, those who saw the works, understood what they were seeing was miraculous. And it was a lack of faith that caused them to say, well, this must be a prophet, when the answer was, this is the Christ of God. And Jesus says... There's a lot that I have to suffer. The Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected of the elders and chief priests. What was the basis of their rejection? A lack of basic faith in God, in the promises of God, the person of God, a desire for self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. There were a lot of reasons for their rejection, but it all boiled down to a lack of faith. God had not revealed to them what he revealed to Simon Peter. 
Remember, Matthew said, Jesus said to Simon, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you. And then we have Old Testament prophecy, the prophecy of the new covenant that God would make. He said, I'll put my laws in your heart. I'll write them in your mind. You'll no more teach every man your brother and every man your neighbor, saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they'll all know me. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. This is the first recorded time where Jesus clearly tells them, I'm going to die. I have to die. I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised again. And he tells them several other times, even in Luke's account, and they don't get it. You remember after his resurrection, the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes and approaches them after his resurrection. And they're sad, they're discouraged. And Jesus says, what are you, fools? Don't you know what the scripture says? Don't you know that I must die? I must be raised again? And they didn't connect it. They didn't see. On this occasion, Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, must be slain, must be raised the third day. Jesus says, I came to die. I came to die. It's the purpose I came for. And it's not your job to alter that fact, to try to save me from death. Matthew gives a much more detailed account of this conversation. Jesus says, I must suffer. I must be killed. And Peter says, be it far from you. We're not going to let that happen. It can't happen. Peter essentially says, didn't you hear me? You are the son of God. Man can't kill you. They can't take your life. They can't reject you. We won't allow it. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things which be of God, but the things which be of men. And really this discussion and this occasion centers around that very idea. Man has his idea about how things ought to be. And every one of us has our idea of how we'd like our life to go. What we'd like to do with our life. Where we'd like to live. What we'd like to see happen. What legacy we want to leave behind. We want to accomplish certain things. And God's ways are not always our ways. As a matter of fact, they very rarely are. And that's the message Jesus has here for his disciples. He said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus hasn't told them yet that crucifixion is the manner of his death. He hasn't explained that to them. They don't know that that's what's coming. In fact, that's probably the farthest thing from their minds. The way the Jews execute people is through stoning crucifixion. It's a Roman method of torture and of death. Jesus says, I must be slain and raised again the third day. And then he connects his suffering to each one of them. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. We're all familiar with that concept, that idea of self-denial. After all, a large part of Christian living is trying to put others before ourselves and care for others before we care for ourselves. To serve God in spite of our own desire, right? Deny ourselves. And to some of us it boils down to just that, that kind of lifestyle that's called asceticism. That is giving up what we desire, doing with nothing. That's not what he's calling us to 
He says, let him deny himself what seems best to him, his ways that are not God's ways, and take up his cross. We use that term fairly frequently, take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. We sometimes use that when we open the doors for acceptance of members in the church. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say this like it's a one-time thing. In fact, quite different. He doesn't say take up your cross means to accept Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to testify as Peter just did, that he is the Christ. No, not at all. He says let him take up his cross daily and follow me. When is it time to follow Jesus? Every single day. What I've done yesterday means very little in the grand scheme of things. It's what I'm doing right now today. And every day we've got to pick up that cross and we've got to follow Him. It doesn't matter what we failed to do yesterday. Today is a new day. It's a fresh start. It doesn't matter what success we had yesterday. We don't get to live and basking in the glory of past successes. Take up his cross daily, he says, and follow me. It's a daily task. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is a daily task. Looking to Jesus is a moment-by-moment necessity. And struggling against sin and against the flesh is a daily struggle. Every moment of every day. That's why he tells us, be vigilant. Be on guard. Why? Because Satan is a roaring lion. When? Every day. Seeking to devour you. Seeking to overturn your faith. Seeking to destroy you. He says our priority needs to be faithfulness rather than survival. Rather than success. Rather than whatever it is our flesh desires to look after. Whosoever will save his life will lose it. There's a promise. Whoever desires, as his first priority, to save his life, to get that which he needs to survive, to sustain life, is going to lose it. Essentially what he's saying is whatever we try to hold on to the tightest is what's going to slip away. It's going to slip through our grasp. That's a certainty in life. But equally sure, equally certain, whoever will lose his life for my sake the same shall save it. There's salvation in what? Letting go. That's what Jesus is saying. Let go of your own best interest. Let go of your own life. Let go of your own desire. Do it for my sake. That's a lesson Peter needs to learn. Peter's saying, Lord, I'm not going to let them kill you. I'm not going to let them capture you. I'm going to defend you. And that's Peter's mindset all the way until the event happens. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas comes and kisses Jesus on the cheek and and the soldiers of of the Sanhedrin are there to arrest him? And Peter pulls out his sword and swings at the head of the high priest's servant, chopping off his ear. And Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. And Jesus puts the ear back on the high priest's servant. He doesn't have stitches like Brother Richard has. He doesn't have to have to wait for it to heal. Jesus heals it instantly. Jesus says, put away your sword. Now's not the time. That's interesting to think about, too, because the reason Peter had a sword is because Jesus said, y'all need to get swords. They said, well, we've got two. He says, it's enough. That's what you need. 
But that wasn't the time for violence. It wasn't the time for using a sword. Why? Jesus says, whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. There's salvation in letting go, in giving up. That's a lesson for every one of us to learn. The more we fight, the more we struggle, the more we lay hold on those things that are so meaningful to us that are not Jesus Christ, the more likely we are to lose them. I don't think in this text Jesus is talking about everlasting life. There's no danger that His disciples are going to lose their relationship with Him. The ones that He's called, the ones for whom He's died, that's not what He's saying. But He's saying what you're holding on to, you're going to lose. And what you lose for My sake, you're going to gain. Actually, He says you're going to gain it a hundred times over. Do you remember as He spoke to the disciples? He said, you need to leave father. You need to leave mother. You need to leave sister. You need to leave brother. You need to leave leave children and houses and lands for my sake. And if you do that, you'll gain a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers. You'll gain that which you lose. He doesn't promise us a life without sorrow, a life without loss. He doesn't promise us that we're not going to lose relationships, friendships, family. But in serving Jesus Christ, what He does promise us is that we're going to gain much. We're going to gain relationships. We're going to gain hope. We're going to gain faith. And in the end everlasting life. He continues the thought in verse 25. Connecting it now to that which is eternal, to that which is everlasting. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself? In Mark's account, it says, if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul. If we give ourselves to this world and this world's good, if we spend our time, our effort, our years, our best years of life trying to gain advantage, trying to gain wealth, trying to gain power, trying to gain whatever it is that seems valuable to us in this world. He says, what value is that if in the end you find out you've got no relationship with Jesus Christ? If in the end you find out that you have nothing, Jesus tells the story of the man who labored to build great barns to store all the great harvest he was going to bring in. The farmer extraordinaire, he was going to build a big barn that could store up grain to feed him and his family for years to come. To sell and prosper and all was going to be good. He said, then I'm going to rest and I'm going to take my ease. So typical of so many of us in this modern American age. We're going to work and we're going to put away and then when we're around 55 or 62 or 65, we're going to retire and live it up. And how many people do that and when those days arrive, they're sick or they're dead and they never get to enjoy it? And how much better to spend those years of labor living with purpose, living 
for Jesus Christ. Using what He's given you for His glory. And recognizing that His glory is really all that matters. What's a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? It's an interesting turn of phrase. Cast away. It's interesting that Luke should use this. Because you remember, Luke was a great friend of the Apostle Paul's. He traveled with Paul. He labored with Paul. He wrote for Paul. He, he did so much with Paul. And Paul was so much a part of Luke's life and Luke of his. And Paul used the same term, cast away. The way Paul used it was as an expression of his own fear. Paul says, yes, I know that I'm called of God. I know I have a purpose and ministry. I know Jesus Christ has used me in a mighty way. He's used me as an apostle. I've labored more abundantly than they all. Yet Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, I keep my body under subjection. I keep my body under subjection, lest after I've preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. Paul gives us that example that no Christian can ever be free from fear that they might be cast away, that they might abandon faith. And our understanding of the doctrine of God's persevering love and Him keeping us in that love should never free us from the fear that we ourselves might become useless, that we ourselves might be cast away. And Jesus gives this warning here in his own words. For anyone who says, well, Paul was kind of off the rails and I don't want to listen to him, Jesus says the same things. Jesus says, what advantage is there if you gain the whole world? You get everything you want. If everything works out the way you want it to, what good is it if you lose yourself or else be cast away? A lot of ways we can read that, a lot we can learn from that. How might we be cast away? The Galatian church was a church that was full of people who professed righteousness. As a matter of fact, as a people, they said, you know, an essential part of Christian living is that we be holy. And one way to achieve holiness is to list down the rules of living and make sure everybody does the same things. And we're going to enforce a righteous lifestyle. And we're going together to be holy. And in doing so, they left aside some of the most important elements of their faith. They left Jesus Christ. So Paul writes them the Galatian letter saying what? You're cast away. Stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made you free. What's wrong with you people? Don't you see freedom is found in Christ alone? Don't you see that you have left the faith, you've fallen from grace. Sometimes we're cast away even in our very attempts to live for Jesus Christ. When we take our eyes off of Him and we forget our dependence on Him, we need to understand that we need Him. The lesson they should have learned from the five loaves and the two fishes is that it's not what I bring to the table that matters because Jesus Christ is able to make much of little. And what's the very next lesson? Well, it is don't spend your life laboring to have much, even if the reason you want much is to use it for God's glory. It's not going to matter. You're going to be cast away. Verse 26, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, 
Of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Are you ashamed of his words? To whatever extent you or I fail to follow his commandments, fail to keep his words, we're ashamed of his words. To whatever extent we cave in to peer pressure and the pressure of the world in which we live and don't live according to his word, we're ashamed of Jesus Christ. We haven't been challenged the way many generations before us have regarding our belief in Christ and our faithfulness to his word, but the time is rapidly approaching when those challenges are going to face each and every one of us. Jesus says... The Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in His glory of anyone who is ashamed of me and of my words. These disciples are going to face challenges of this nature. The Apostle Peter, the very man who has just said, You are the Christ of God, is going to be asked, Aren't you one of those Galilean disciples of Jesus? The scene is a trial a judgment hall where Jesus is on stage before the multitude. And they're shouting away with him. And they're calling him a blasphemer and a heretic. And Peter comes in out of the cold and there warms himself by the enemy's fire. Have you ever wondered where that expression comes from? That is it. Peter comes in to the hall. He sees the Lord up on stage. And the servant girl says, haven't I seen you with him before? Aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter has an opportunity there to say, yes, I am. And I'll gladly go with him to death. That's what Peter said a few hours before. He said, Jesus, I will go with you to death. Here's his chance. He knows what's coming. Jesus has told him what's coming. And Peter says, I don't know him. Two more times. Aren't you his disciple? I know not the man. <coughs> Whoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the Holy Angels. <coughs> After the third denial, the rooster crowed. Peter looked up. He looked in the eyes of Jesus, and Jesus just gazed at him. I imagine these words came back to Peter. What fear must have been. What agony. What must Peter have felt in that moment? And you know, we read words like this, and they make us fearful as well they should. Have you ever been ashamed of him and his words? Every one of us has, from time to time. Not in such an obvious way as Peter in his moment of denial. But we've all been ashamed. And that must have been a hopeless feeling that Peter felt. And maybe you felt hopeless because of your failure. Because of your disobedience. Because you've known to do good and you've done it not. You said, surely the Lord's going to be ashamed of me at His coming. He won't own me as His own. He won't call on me in that day. But you know, for Peter, there was forgiveness. And there's forgiveness for everyone for whom Jesus Christ died. Even of such great sin, even 
being ashamed of the Lord and of His Word. Finishing up our text real quick, verse 27, Jesus says, But I tell you of a truth. There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Till they see the kingdom of God. He says, you are going to see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? They're not going to taste of death till they see the kingdom. I'll tell you one thing that means. That means the kingdom is here. The kingdom isn't just referring to heaven when we die. He says, you're going to see the kingdom. You're going to see a place where Christ rules, where He is majesty, and you're going to see it in this life. He says to His disciples, you're going to see the kingdom. But it was something they hadn't seen yet. Though later on in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, the kingdom is among you, or it's within you. He says, you're going to see the kingdom, but they haven't seen it yet. Right now they've seen the king. They've seen Jesus. He says, you're going to see the kingdom. There was a lot for them to learn. There's a lot for us to learn about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Him. For Peter, the lesson was made very personal. Peter denied the Lord. And he had every reason to expect that Jesus Christ would deny him at His coming. Every reason to be discouraged, every reason to give up. All of the disciples were discouraged. They hung together at Jerusalem waiting to see what would happen, but expecting nothing. And then that third day, the women came and they said, He's not in the tomb. He's risen. And Peter runs first to see whether this be true. And Jesus isn't there. Later he appears to them in that upper room. They see that he's alive. The disciples from the road to Emmaus come and say, We talked with him. Our hearts burned within us while we walked with him by the way. Hopes rekindled. But in Peter, there must have still been such fear, such agony. John chapter 21. Peter says, I go a fishing. They said, We'll go with you. And they went forth. They entered into a ship and they fished all night and caught nothing. In the morning, Jesus shows them where the fish are. And he's already got fish waiting on coals ready to be eaten on the shore. Peter is the first one to shore, sits down with Jesus. And Jesus begins to speak. John 21, verse 15. After they had eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith, saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. It's no surprise that Jesus asks him three times. After all, three times Simon had denied knowing him. 
It's no surprise that Peter was grieved because he saw the similarity. He saw that Jesus was questioning his truthfulness. Do you really love me? How far are you willing to go with that love? You said you'd love me to death. But when the opportunity to die with me presented itself, you lied and you fled in fear. You saved your life rather than losing it. And Peter is grieved at this. Then verse 18, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. In our text in Luke, Jesus says, If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And now to Peter, Jesus applies it so vividly, so really. He says, Peter, the time's coming when you're going to be old and you're going to be crucified. Your arms are going to be stretched forth. You're going to be taken where you don't want to go. You're going to die. And then he said, follow me. Peter now knows what he's talking about. Peter has seen the Savior crucified. He's seen him dead. He's seen him resurrected. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me to death. And Peter still isn't quite there. Peter turns around and says, Okay, Lord, but what about this disciple? What about him? And he points at John. Jesus says, What is it to you if I would that he live until I come again? It's none of your concern. Peter, follow me. The example we have of New Testament Christianity is one of sacrifice. It's one of service. It's one of self-denial. It's one of following Him. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. They're ashamed of Him. They're afraid to follow Him because they've seen what He's suffered and they've seen what He's endured. And Paul writes to them and he says, I'm not ashamed of my suffering. As a matter of fact, I can boast in it. He gives a list of his sufferings, physically, mentally. His sufferings for Jesus Christ. He says, if I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. At the end of his life, as he looks back over a lifetime of suffering and of ministry, he writes to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 3. He says, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable 
unto his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is Paul's summation. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things. I've lost everything, but I've lost it for Christ. And I've recognized that those things that once were valuable to me really are not what matters. They're really not that significant. There's a change in the life of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. In the life of everyone who is called by His Spirit. Who's given new life in Him that really does make us new creatures. It changes how we look at the things that are gained to us. The things that matter to us change. Our priorities change. And then there's a warfare, a struggle. Lest we go back. Lest we fall back into our old lifestyle, into our old ways. Our old sense of priorities. What matters most? Jesus Christ says, follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Take it up daily. Why does he say daily? Because every day Paul woke up, he had to deny himself. When Paul found himself standing before councils and standing before educated elite like in Corinth, Paul had to daily remind himself, I'm not going to glory in anything save Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because He's the one I'm here to represent. Paul had to forget his skills as a lawyer. He had to lay down his knowledge and his ability to stand in his own strength. He had to glory in Christ alone. And that was a daily denial. When he began to suffer physically, he had to suffer willingly. He had to deny himself. He had the ability to talk himself out of the situation. He had the ability, by saying a few words, to change his fate. But he didn't do it. When he found himself in prison in Rome, standing before Caesar, all he had to do was acknowledge Christ and other gods, and he could have gone free. But he didn't do that. Instead, he preached Christ the only way. Christ, the only hope, even for a Roman Caesar. For that, Paul suffered death. He chose Christ above man, and Christ above self-preservation. Why? Because he that will save his life will lose it. But he that will lose his life for my sake shall find it. 2 Peter chapter 1, I always find my way back to this text, Peter the old man. Peter, my hero. The man who was always there with a good word and then a bad action to follow. Peter who always knew what was right but so often failed to do what was right. The end of his life, he says, I know what Jesus said to me and I want you to know it's all been worth it. I want to remind you of what you know. I want you to be established in truth. As long as I'm alive, I want to remind you. Verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. He says, I'm ready. 
to die. I'm ready to give up this life. And he's about to do it. Just like Jesus told him. And Peter approaches the end of his life, the suffering, the agony that he's going to face, he approaches it with joy. How is that possible? Why is that possible? Because there was a time in his life when he didn't think he would ever make it. He didn't think that he would stand. He didn't think he would be converted. He didn't think he would be willing to do what he said he would, to die for his Savior. And now he's arrived. The time has come. And Peter goes rejoicing. History tells us that when they came to get Peter to crucify him, he requested that they build his cross upside down because he didn't want to suffer the same way that his Savior did. He didn't want anyone to say that he's like Jesus. But Peter rejoiced to suffer. He writes his first epistle about what? About suffering. About suffering for Jesus Christ. Saying we ought to be willing to suffer as he suffered. Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things. But he says it's worth it. Why? Because Jesus Christ is with me. And I'm going to be with him. That's Peter's hope that he lived for. The hope of all the disciples. And that's our hope as well. Jesus says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. Each of us who has professed faith in Jesus Christ has committed to a life of service, a life of obedience. We've professed a willingness to deny ourselves, a willingness to do the hard things. And Jesus hasn't called us to a life of ease. He hasn't called us to a life of prosperity. And he hasn't said that he'll provide for us everything our flesh wants. Quite the contrary. But he's promised something greater. He's promised that he will be with us. He will stand by us. When? Every day. And we'll feel his presence every day that we deny ourselves. That we take up our cross. What cross is that? What does that mean? Well, it means different things for every person every day. It means to be obedient. To follow him to do what He commands of you. How do you know what He's commanding? You begin with His Word. We talked Wednesday night about reading His Word, studying His Word. He speaks to us in His Word, through His Word. If we're not opening His Word, we don't know. But then how do we know? How does it apply? We pray for guidance. We speak to Him as a God who hears, a God who lives, a God who's real. And he takes his word and he applies it. The Spirit shows us. As Jesus says, he'll lead you into all truth. He never leads us contrary to his word. But through his word, he directs. And then we choose 
to obey. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it's difficult. We know what He says. We know what's true. His Spirit prompts us, moves us, guides us. But will we choose to obey? Or will we turn aside? Peter knew what was right when the young woman said, Are you his disciple? But Peter didn't choose to do what was right. The consequence seemed too great. The price seemed too high. We face decisions every day. And there's always a question of whether the price is too high, more than we want to pay. Jesus Christ paid the price. A price that was higher than any of us could imagine for each and every one of us. He didn't turn aside. He had a choice. And He made His choice. His choice was to suffer. He says, take up your cross and follow me. That's our decision every day, daily, to follow Him. And if we do, the promise is hope. The promise is life everlasting. The promise is joy beyond compare. But with that comes acknowledgement that there's loss, there's suffering. In this life, we're not promised all the joy that our flesh can desire. But we're promised spiritual joys beyond compare. Where? In God's kingdom. There be some of you standing here today, said Jesus, who won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God. And when you've experienced life in His kingdom, when you've experienced the kingdom of God, you don't want anything this world has to offer. Why? Because it's better. Want to understand more of that? Read the Hebrew letter. It's better. Everything is better with Jesus Christ. Thank you for your attention this morning. Prayer of the Lord.